Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic. Episode 213, I Believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of Heaven and Earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. many things done at Mass in parish churches today that really burn me up. I don't get steam because of my personal preferences, though. Many of these liturgical abuses would be all right with me, except for one thing. These abuses pervert what the Catholic Church commands regarding the Mass, which is the highest form of worship of God. One abuse that particularly sticks in my craw is what we're going to talk about this week. Help this apostolate while you help yourself. First, check out what I have for sale on cantankerouscatholic.com on the Joe's Stuff page. I have books, coffee mugs, and t-shirts. Your purchase helps this apostolate. 
On the episode's blog and about pages, there are Catholic Amazon items in the sidebar. I change those offerings every week now. When you click on those images, as long as you shop at Amazon after doing so, this apostolate gets a small commission on everything you buy. Please help this apostolate while you buy whatever you're going to buy anyway. I've had Simon Ray from Church Militant on the show before, but I've also used the audio portion of his wildly popular premium member series called Case File. Before I make my comments on the topic at hand, we're going to listen to what Simon has to say. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Case File show on Church Militant, let me first tell you a bit about it. In Case File, Simon dresses and acts as an old 1930s and 40s private eye. He treats the problems we experience in the church as criminal cases he's investigating. He covers such topics as agents of darkness in the church, the loss of Latin in the Mass, and how we dress at Mass, which is appalling, by the way. You don't really get the sense of Simon's acting in the audio I'm going to play you because I've removed everything that only plays out well in video. Despite my editing, I kept every last word Simon said in this 11-minute show. I want to warn you now that this topic will really anger some of you. Some of my friends who are good and devout Catholics, but don't know any better because of the terrible catechetical formation over the last 60 or 70 years, have daughters and granddaughters who are altar girls. They're proud of their daughters and granddaughters being altar girls. I think I would be too, except that there are theological reasons that the church doesn't permit altar girls. She has never permitted altar girls throughout her 2,000-year history. Any bishop or priest who permits altar girls is in direct disobedience to the Catholic Church today. After listening to this, if you have a daughter or granddaughter serving at the altar and don't put a stop to it, you'll also be in disobedience to the Church. And disobedience to the Catholic Church puts your soul at risk. Do you ever think you've been sold a gold brick? Somehow someone's pulled the wool over your eyes and done some kind of switcheroo? I'm not talking about if you're going to buy a car and it's a lemon. I'm talking about the faith. You look around the church today at her liturgy and you see abuses everywhere. Communion in the hand, liturgical dances, crazy music. People dress like they're going to the beach. And that's if they go to mass at all. What happened? How did we get here? Well, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to open up my files and take you through some cases give you all the information so that you can understand not only what's going on, but how we got here, why it's wrong, and most importantly, what you can do about it. I call this one the case of the girls in the sanctuary. We've all seen it. Women serving on the altar. Altar girls rather than altar boys. It started as an abuse, and it's been consistently condemned throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Canon 44 of the Synod of Laodicea, held in the 4th century, tells us women may not go to the altar. In 1755, Pope Benedict XIV said, Pope Gelasius condemned the evil practice which has been introduced of women serving the priest at the celebration of Mass. The abuse spread to the Greeks, and so Innocent IV wrote to the Bishop of Tusculum saying, women should not dare to serve at the altar. They should be altogether refused this ministry. We too have forbidden this practice in the same words. All right, you want something more recent? 
How about the 1917 Code of Canon Law? A woman may not be a minister of the mass except when no male is available and for a just cause and under the condition that she makes the responses from a distance, not under any circumstances approaching the altar. Yeah, that's before Vatican II, you say. After the council, the church must have changed, right? Nope. Girls serving on the altar was actually condemned twice. First, by Pope Paul VI in 1970 when he wrote, in conformity with norms traditional in the church, women, single, married, religious, whether in churches, homes, convents, schools, or institutions for women, are barred from serving the priest at the altar. And then, ten years later, in 1980, Saint Pope John Paul II repeated it. There are, of course, various roles that women can perform in the liturgical assembly. These include reading of the word of God and proclamations of the intentions of the prayer of the faithful. Women are not, however, permitted to act as altar servers. So, it's pretty clear the church doesn't allow and has never allowed women to serve on the altar. Now, a lot of people, feminists, badly formed priests, other people with woolly-headed ideas, don't much like that. They think it's nothing more than woman-hating chauvinism from an outdated and oppressive patriarchal institution, a bunch of old guys trying to cling on to power. I mean, after all, what's the big deal, all right? It can't be really wrong to have altar girls, right? After all, anything a boy can do, a girl can do just as well, huh? Besides, if the girls serve, they'll take a more active role in the church. Might even encourage them in a, in a religious vacation? Maybe? Surely, it'd be awful sexist not to allow women to serve in this day and age, right? Wrong. This ain't some arbitrary prohibition. There are serious pastoral and theological difficulties with women serving at the altar, and these can have a very damaging impact on the faith. Let's examine the pastoral difficulties first. Now, no one would say women don't have a role to play in the church. That's not what this is about. But the church has always recognized that there are differences between the sexes, and that these differences mean each gender has distinctive roles to play in the economy of salvation. Whatever role a woman wants to play, and there are many roles she can play, and all of them are absolutely vital, she can never be a priest. And this doesn't mean the church doesn't allow women to be priests. Women are unable to be priests. A female priest is like a square circle, a contradiction in terms. Pope John Paul II laid this out very clearly when he wrote, Wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, a matter which pertains to the church's divine constitution itself, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the church's faithful. And before you get the idea that was Pope John Paul, and he was a crusty old Polish conservative, let's remember that hip and cool Pope Francis, who everyone seems to think is up for changing anything, said, with regard to the ordination of women, the church has spoken and said, no, that door is closed. Despite this, some people have called for the Catholic Church to do the impossible and ordain a lady. Some of these individuals are simply ignorant, useful idiots who don't understand why what they are asking is impossible, but others are motivated by a Marxist and feminist ideology called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism views all inequalities as inherently evil and tries to break them down by any means necessary. The big problem with it is that it denies objective reality. Men and women are of equal value, but they're not the same. Like a dollar bill and four quarters, same value, not the same thing. There are real differences, biological, physiological, psychological, between men and women. These mean each sex has different roles to play. And because a woman can't be a priest, letting a girl be an altar server is kind of cruel. Priests often started out as altar boys, 
studies back this up. Jordan, can you bring in the Kara report? Thanks. The Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate conducted a survey of ordinance to the priesthood every year for a few years there. In it, priests are asked about their ethnicity, siblings, education, and participation in parish ministries, that kind of thing. One of the questions asked was, were you an altar server during your formative years? Thanks, Jordan. In 2010, 70% of the respondents had been servers. In 2011, it was 71. 75% in 2012, and... 67% in 2013. Clearly, there's a strong correlation. Letting a girl be an altar server gives her false hope. It puts her on a path that leads logically to the priestly state. Although not all, not even most, altar boys become priests or even continue to serve on the altar, that is because they choose to step off that path. Some poor altar girl doesn't have that choice. The end goal is something she can never attain. At best, she will be disappointed. At worst, she might go off and join some crazy group who lie to her and say she's ordained. Set aside the damage this does to the church, that ain't fair to her. Some people say letting women serve on the altar encourage them to become nuns, but I don't buy it. Sure, being involved with something to do with the church might encourage them to stay engaged, but there's nothing specific about serving mass that would encourage a girl to become a nun. Nuns don't perform the sacrifice of the mass. They're not priests or anything like it. And it's not just the girls that it's unfair to, it's unfair to the boys as well. Let's, let's be honest here. Once girls become involved in something, the more the boys see it as a girly thing, and they don't want to do it no more. You don't end up with a quality of numbers of girls and boys on the altar. You end up with a sanctuary filled with women and the boys sitting in the pews, if they come to mass at all. In more traditional parishes, where they don't allow altar girls at all, this ain't so. In parishes like this, it's usual to have a bunch of young men serving. They see it as a noble and chivalrous pursuit. In these parishes, vocations are dramatically on the rise. So, those are the pastoral concerns. Let's take a look at theology. Like I said, being an altar boy is the first step on a path that leads to priesthood. A guy doesn't have to walk the whole path, but it's a path only a young man can walk. This is because, historically, the position of altar boy corresponds to the minor order of acolyte. Service at the altar has always been associated with the clerical state. Adding women to the mix not only breaks with 2,000 years of tradition, but also makes real changes to the theology of the Mass. Churches aren't built the way they're built on a whim. Architecture means something. It represents heaven and earth. The nave corresponds to the earth, and the sanctuary corresponds to heaven. The sanctuary is where Christ's sacrifice is represented to the Father. It's associated with Christ and the masculine. The nave is the place where the bride of Christ, his church, is seated. It represents the feminine. This separation of the masculine and feminine reflects a proper understanding of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and more generally, between God and his creation. Everything about the Mass has a deep theological significance. For example, the movements and gestures of the altar servers, disciplined and well-coordinated, they remind us of a well-trained militia, like the legions of angels in heaven who are present at every Mass, adoring our Lord and Saviour. And yeah, no matter what Hallmark greeting cards might try to tell us, angels are masculine, and they are military, and they are disciplined. God and heaven are perfectly ordered, perfectly harmonious. The Mass should express this. Otherwise, we aren't offering fitting worship to Him. To be perfectly honest, there's more to being an altar servant than just being a guy. You've got to be masculine, part of a well-drilled group with discipline, teamwork, and precision. Sloppy liturgical movements, well, they're... Almost as big a problem as having girls up there. 
The mass must manifest theological truths, otherwise it might lead the faithful into error. Now, I've got a whole bunch of case files to go through about this, believe me, but this particular thing, women on the altar, this is pretty much where it starts. Because, and I know this is going to upset a whole bunch of people, and not all of them are Marxist feminist hippies or anti-Catholic proponents of liturgical revolution or women's ordination. Some of them are badly formed, but otherwise good Catholics, who don't understand the fundamental importance of the difference between the sexes to the liturgy. The reason this is the first case file I open is because introducing the feminine into the masculine realm of the sanctuary doesn't just blur the lines between the genders, causing confusion to men and women alike, giving them false hope which could never be fulfilled. It also symbolically disturbs the distinction between Christ and his bride, the church. It disrupts the distinction between lay people and the priest, between us and Christ. And if that distinction is damaged, then our relationship, which is the means of salvation, suffers too. Like I said, this isn't going to please a lot of people, but then again, the church isn't concerned with keeping up with the latest trends or ideologies. She is only concerned with one thing, the salvation of souls and the proper worship of the one true God. And I think the conclusion is pretty clear. There are too many pastoral and theological problems caused by women serving on the altar to encourage it or even allow it. There should be an immediate and complete return to only men and boys serving mass. It's not a popular opinion, perhaps, but I think we can call this case closed. I know that some people will say that they don't care what the church teaches, that they don't see anything wrong with altar girl. If you're one of those people who say that, please show me the documentation that you were elected pope in the last conclave. I'm pretty certain that Francis was elected, despite his pontificate being a dumpster fire. As Catholics, we're not free to dissent from church teaching just because we don't like it. Remember that the little flower said she'd die for even one rubric of the Mass. So how much more important do you think a 2,000-year teaching is? There were only two bishops that I know of who upheld the church's ban on altar girls. The first bishop was Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. This bishop was courageous when he became bishop there. He not only had the guts to put a stop to altar girls, but he also excommunicated a list of Catholics who dissented from church teaching. The other was Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione of San Francisco. As I recall, when he became archbishop in 2012, he banned the use of altar girls in his archdiocese. That took courage, and I had high hopes for San Francisco then. However, I've noticed that all his letters and diocesan articles have been removed from the website prior to 2019. I suspect that altar girls are again allowed there. Archbishop Corleone is an Orthodox bishop ruling a diocese in the most liberal city in the country, so he's got a tough job. Unfortunately, I'm afraid he's been beaten down so badly that he's become a coward. While on the one hand he banned Nancy Pelosi from communion for her promotion of abortion, on the other hand, it only took the man ten years to do it. It's something that should have been done eight years earlier, with two years to give him time to get Pelosi to repent, so I say he's become a coward. That said, it still took courage to ban altar girls. So now you've had a primer in what's wrong with altar girls. 
If you're a parent or grandparent of an altar girl, do what you will with that information, but do so carefully because it might determine where you spend eternity. Hey, Simon Rayfair, Chief of Staff at Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and get an honest view of all things going on inside and outside the church. We're the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilton.com today. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Josek Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Six-Pack Warriors, here I am again with Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas. I've got your questions. He's got your answers. How are you today, Excellency? Good, Joe. How are you? Oh, just as happy as if I had good sense. Listen, we've got an interesting one here. Jack asks, the retired priest who hears confessions on Saturdays and offers noon masses during the week often doesn't show up on the important days, such as first Saturdays, holy days of obligation, etc. I find it very frustrating that I cannot meet the requirements of the five first Saturdays in a row, and I had no one to offer Mass on All Saints Day this year, even though I was in church praying for an hour before Mass, uh, before Mass was to begin. If I cannot go to confession on First Friday, I cannot receive Holy Communion either. Now I have to start over. My priest told me to receive Holy Communion without confessing my mortal sins because the priest didn't show up and go to confession as soon as I can, presumably next week. This stunned me and I balked at the concept of receiving our Lord in a state of mortal sin. My pastor insisted it was a good and pious practice to abstain from communion without confession, but it was not actually necessary. How would you respond to that? Well, um, I think probably technically the priest is correct, but my response would be um, really on the side of this questioner, out of respect for the Lord. I mean, we're receiving him. Uh, and, you know, it, it's one thing. I mean, if you're in circumstances of death or something, I mean, everything changes. But right. If you have the opportunity, and maybe you don't get the the five first Saturdays or whatever, but I, I guess my advice would be, it would require something more significant, more an obstacle more significant than what I heard to say. Well, go ahead and receive, and then confess after. Um, there, you know. There might be circumstances where I would agree with that, but I, I think we have to just remind ourselves that, I mean, it, I would think it better to receive a spiritual communion until you can, you know, go to confession. Um, 
but I, I think technically speaking, as far as the um, what is absolutely required, certainly, uh, and maybe what I'm talking about is is more of a the more pious approach of just out of respect for the Lord refraining. But that's what I'd recommend. Okay, Excellency. I, uh, I'm i going to ask for some clarification here because you said that this pastor is technically right. My understanding uh, is that unless, of course, there's danger of death or, uh, you know, like maybe a guy in combat and war zone uh, has an opportunity for communion but not confession, uh, you know, extreme situations like that, that it's absolutely forbidden to receive communion in a state of mortal sin. Yeah, um, and that's basically what I had in mind was those kind of very extreme circumstances. Okay. Um, that's good. I <laughs> I was sweating there. I was going to have to call you out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, do, do that if you need to. I can make mistakes, but uh, yeah, I mean, it would the the extreme circumstance of basically in danger of death or something like that. And even then, um, it, certainly nobody would be required to receive. And and I think the better path would be to say, out of respect for the Lord, who's really the one we're receiving to say, no, I'm, I'm not in a state of, of being able to receive him at this point. In the spiritual, I mean, I think more grace would come from that myself. I, I, I do too. I agree. Being faithful to our Lord who is offering himself in the Mass and a representation of Calvary, you're giving the ultimate respect whenever you absolutely refuse to receive communion if you have mortal sin. I've always told six-pack warriors that receiving communion when you're in a state of mortal sin is like standing at the foot of the cross and throwing cow dung on him or spitting on him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same thing. By the way, you say you're not perfect? <laughs> nope, not far from it. Oh, well, I am. <laughs> okay. Excellency, that's our only question this week, and I think you've answered it thoroughly. Uh, so thanks a lot, and we'll see you again next week, okay? Thanks, Joe. Okay. Discover why thousands of readers worldwide turn to The Wanderer newspaper for weekly perspective and analysis of the news and events that increasingly threaten our values and our way of life. Hello, my name is Joe Matt, publisher of America's oldest national Catholic weekly newspaper, The Wanderer. If you take your Catholic faith seriously and you are concerned about the direction of our country, the ever-encroaching hand of big government, the assault of the culture on the traditional family, and the threat of progressive leaders in our churches who embrace much of the current leftist culture rather than opposing it, you will find a home in the pages of The Wanderer. If you are tired of being force-fed the agenda-driven false narratives of the day by the godless dominant media and the political elite who preside within our government, our schools, and yes, in our Catholic churches, it is time for you to take a look at The Wanderer. Every week The Wanderer addresses these concerns, exposing the who, what, and the why with sound analysis and solutions to these problems that threaten the values we hold dear. 
Not only is the Wanderer a great source for the issues that affect our lives, but it is also a great tool to learn more about the treasures of our Catholic faith and how to defend it in this time of great moral decay. I'm so confident you will like the Wanderer. For you six-packers out there, I have a special offer. For $1, that's $1, we are offering new subscribers the opportunity to receive one month's worth of issues. That's four weekly issues. Take the Wanderer for a test drive. After one month, it is $9 a month. You can cancel anytime you want. I hope you will take advantage of this limited offer today. Text the word NEWS to 830-331-5729 and I will send you a link to this offer or look for the link in Joe's show notes below. The Wanderer. For 154 years, unabashedly pro-life, independent, and conservative in its politics, and steadfast in its defense of Orthodox Catholicism. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. What is Truth was a number three song for the late Johnny Cash in 1970. Even though I was just a teenager, and this really tells my age, I knew he borrowed the title from a line out of the Gospel of St. John. This famous question came from an exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate at Jesus' judgment. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Pilate was asking a question, albeit rhetorically, that man has been asking for thousands of years. It's a question of particular significance and interest today. Indeed, I hear many Catholics asking this question in various ways even now, but without realizing it, they already have the answer. For me, Pilate's question seems absurd. He's asking what truth is while staring truth right in the face. This exchange is an actual event, but it's symbolic as well. Note what's happening. Pilate had already had Jesus beaten with a cruelly made whip that rips flesh from the body, and he was about to condemn our Lord to be crucified. In other words, Pilate was abusing truth. Abusing truth, with a little t, and thus truth, with a big t, is something we humans do all the time. It's a consequence of our fallen human nature, and no one's immune to it. Our minds were created by God to know and live by truth, but the effects of original sin get in the way, and we consequently often deny and abuse truth. You abuse truth, I abuse truth, we all abuse truth. But I'm not talking about lying. Many listeners may have never told a lie in their entire lives. This applies to many people, but I'm ashamed to say I'm not one of them. 
No, lying isn't the sort of abuse of the truth I'm talking about. The sort of truth abuse I'm talking about is the flat-out denial of truth. Did you know there still exists a flat-earth society? Yeah, I'm serious. Google it. This group actually believes the earth is flat. Never mind that man has known for hundreds of years and proven repeatedly that the earth is round, these folks deny every bit of evidence of that truth. Now, this is a seemingly harmless denial of truth, but there are forms of truth denial so prevalent today that they're destroying Western culture, society, and, most importantly, souls. Denial of truth is actually an organized movement, and it's all around us. It goes by many names, or at least has had names assigned to it. Perhaps you'll recognize some of the names. Liberalism, political correctness, the left, heterodoxy. I don't use these labels to attempt to be condescending, but rather so we can all shift into the mental gear that'll help us to understand what we're talking about here. An example of their truth denial that unfortunately all too many of us have bought into is the government's preposterous promotion of unisex restrooms. This is an example of denying a truth that man has known since the dawn of time, that there are differences between the sexes. And our intuitive need for modesty makes most of us reject that position out of hand. But it won't always be that way. Hitler won the hearts and minds of the German people by using the principal belief that if you tell a lie bizarre enough and long enough, people will begin to believe it. His lies to the German people led to the Holocaust, the cruel murder of six million Jews for no better reason than that they were Jews. That same principle is being used on us today by the left, and it's working. Homosexual behavior is wrong. It's against the laws of God and a perversion of nature. There's a reason why God made two sexes, the continuation of the human race. Logic and reason, even absent of God's law, tell us that homosexual behavior is wrong because it's impossible to procreate when two people of the same gender engage in sexual activity. Yet the left has attempted in the last 50 years or so to convince us it's not only an acceptable alternative lifestyle, but that it's also normal and even natural. They have, for the most part, succeeded in foisting that ridiculous belief on us. But as Catholics, indeed as mere humans imbued with the ability to reason things out, we know homosexual behavior is a perversion of nature. But the acceptance of lies on the perversion of nature didn't begin a half century ago with the promotion of homosexuality as natural. Now, it all started at the Anglican Lambeth Conference of 1930. The so-called sexual revolution was young and growing in Europe, thanks to Sigmund Freud, Margaret Sanger, and other social engineers of the day. Artificial contraception had always been considered a sin worthy of eternal condemnation by Christian religion, but the Anglican faithful were caught up in the sexual revolution, so they told the Anglican bishops they wanted to contracept. Under pressure from their people, the Anglican bishops caved in. I've read what they wrote. 
What they basically said was, yeah, artificial contraception is a mortal sin, but by our authority alone, we're giving you folks permission to contracept. And the floodgates opened. At the time, the use of artificial contraception was illegal, even if unenforceable, in every state in America. But by 1933, because of what began in Europe, artificial contraception was widely in use in America. But the denial of logic and right reason and the abuse of truth doesn't change truth. Nothing can change truth because truth is immutable by its very nature. The Anglican bishops open the door for their people to pervert nature, which is what artificial contraception is, a perversion of nature. When we accept one perversion of nature as normal or natural to satisfy our own desires, then we can find it easier to accept the next lie. Let me make it patently clear. Artificial contraception is a perversion of nature, thus a soul-destroying sin that condemns people to consignment in hell. So here's the bottom line. We deny truth and abuse it all the time. It's our way of justifying what we want to do instead of doing what we ought to do. But denying truth with our justifications doesn't make those truths any less true, and we will be held accountable for them by Almighty God. This means, of course, when we abuse truth or deny it, we are abusing and denying Christ who is true. That means the blood of Jesus is on our hands. I realize there are going to be some very strong reactions from listeners, and I look forward to them. Most will bluster and abuse me in order to salve their own consciences for abusing truth. That's okay, I'm abusable. But I want you to realize exactly what my response will be when you try to tell me what a moron and judgmental pig I am. And yes, listeners have called me those things. I'm going to respond with love and respect, giving my unwavering support for the immutable truths of Jesus and his holy Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because this is what we believe and why we believe it. If you own a website that generates revenue for you, directly or indirectly, According to a recent Supreme Court ruling, you must be compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. If you're not compliant, the government can fine you $50,000. Slip and fall lawyers are scouring the internet for non-compliant websites to sue on behalf of disabled clients for tens of thousands of dollars. One disabled man has filed over 800 lawsuits against non-compliant site owners. There were over 10,000 suits filed in 2020, but that number grew to 100,000 in 2022. Once they file suit against you, the government will definitely fine you, and there's no way to win against the fines or suit. You simply have to settle. Getting your website ADA compliant is very expensive. The minimum I've seen charged for this service is $4,000, but I've seen as much as $15,000. Well, I've learned how to make websites ADA compliant. If you want your website ADA compliant and avoid lawsuits and fines, as well as help finance this apostolate at the same time, for you six-pack warriors, I'll only charge $1,000 for full compliance. 
The $4,000 minimum charged by other ADA compliance consultants will only keep you from being fined. It takes full compliance to keep you from being sued, but that costs from eleven dollars to $15,000. Again, I'll do full compliance for any six-pack warrior for only $1,000 or $100 a month. Just click the link in my show notes on cantankerouscatholic.com and we'll get your site ADA compliant. Get compliant or risk lawsuits and fines. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He said, Give something, however small, to one in need, for it is not small to the one who has nothing. Neither is it small to God if we have given what we could. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Little Anne and her father were non-Catholics who were visiting the city of New York. Since Anne had an interest in visiting the different kinds of churches, they went into an old Protestant church and admired the organ, stained glass windows, and intricately carved pulpit. Then they visited a Catholic church, and the first thing Anne noticed was the little red sanctuary light. She asked, Daddy, what's the little red light for? Her father explained that it was a sign that Jesus was present in the church. But where is Jesus, she asked. Behind the golden door you see on the altar. No wonder it feels so holy in this church. But does he ever come out from the little golden door? Yes, the priest takes him out every morning when the people come to Mass and receive him in Holy Communion. Can I receive Jesus, Daddy? Anne asked longingly. Oh no, you're not a Catholic, but let's go now, we've seen enough of this church. When they went to another Protestant church, the first thing Anne asked was, Daddy, where's the little red light? She was disappointed as she begged, Daddy, can we go back to the church where Jesus lives? Anne's last words kept ringing in her father's ears for a long time, till he finally made up his mind to become a Catholic, because he wanted to belong to the church where Jesus is really and truly present under the appearances of bread and wine. Anne was baptized with her father. Later, her mother became a Catholic, too. Years later, when Anne was a grown woman, her old father was dying. One of the last things he said to his daughter was, and thank you for leading me to the church where Jesus lives. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.